Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm genuinely delighted. I've been trying to get this guest on for over a year now, and finally, our calendars aligned. Welcome, Mark Hunter. Hey, thank you for having me on. You're right. It's taken a year, but that means we're both busy. So, hey, you know what? That's probably a good thing, right? Absolutely. Certainly no complaints from me. Best year of my life. So Mark Hunter is the sales hunter. He's a multiple author. He's written several books, including A Mind for Sales and High Profit Prospecting. And both of us have an obsessive passion around sales. So buckle up. Uh, I hope this is going to be a deeply uncomfortable episode for most of you listening, because we're going to challenge some preconceptions. Mark, would you mind just giving us 60 seconds on your history, please, so people understand how you got to where you are? Sure. My history is that I didn't want to get into sales. I did not want sales. Sales was not on my radar screen all the way through college. I only got into sales because of the police department. Yeah, the police department got me into sales. Reason being is because I got like four speeding tickets in the course of about eight weeks. And what happened was I ultimately came to the point that I couldn't afford car insurance. I could not afford car insurance. So I had to find a job that supplied me with a car. That's how I wound up in sales because I got a job that supplied me with a car. I was so good. I got fired from that job. So then I got another job in sales, another company car. I was so good. I got fired from that one. It wasn't until my third job. And I thought I was going to get fired from that one. And oh, by the way, third company car that I began to realize what sales is all about. And since that point on, it's been one incredible ride. Excellent. Okay. So Mark, first question, given that you are the author of High Profit Prospecting, why don't people prospect? Because they don't want to. That's what it comes to. I mean, here's what it comes down to. People want to make big money in sales. I mean, that's what they want to do. They they, they get into sales because they want to make the big money. But they're afraid to reach out and touch and contact people who they don't know. They're afraid to, can I say the word pester? I'll say the word pester, people. And we'll get into this. We'll unpack this some more, but they're just afraid to do the work. You see, what happens is too many people view sales like a membership to the gym. Hey, if I just get a membership to the gym, I'm going to, I'm going to be in perfect shape. I'm going to have this perfect body. No, you won't. You got to go into the gym. You got to do the work because if you don't do the work, there ain't going to be nothing to show for it. Okay. I'm going to challenge you. Let's kick off um, with a bit of a fight. Um, Because I believe you're absolutely right. You have to have a prospecting habit. But the old school is you just got to dial for dollars. You got to go through a big list. You got to just hammer the phones. You got to be a pest. And over the last 20, 25 years, I've discovered that something that works for me, which is I need a mix of routes to market, content systematically getting good at referral, doing a bloody good job, and building a reputation for outstanding results creates a strong inbound pipeline. Now, using technology, AI, allows me to build prioritized lists so I don't have to look for the needles in the haystack. And it's, in all honesty, a lot less daunting than it used to be. I'm great on the phone. But like other people, I feel uncomfortable. I don't want to interrupt. But 
when I have that mix, then I feel like I belong. I have the right. And so I'm curious, how do you help an incurable, lazy, uh, intelligently lazy, I'll uh, give myself that, salesperson who's got a, I've got a strong pipeline, but I don't like the whole process of prospecting by phone. Okay, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on that. Let's unpack this because here's something I find. I, I find a lot of people say, well, I don't want to make phone calls. I don't want to reach out to people. I'm just going to put a lot of stuff out on social media. And if I put enough stuff out on social media, people will beat a path to my door and I'll have all this business. And I'll say, you know what? You're going to starve to death. Here's the whole thing. We all love it. I love inbound. I love inbound. Nothing wrong. And, and in the inbound you get is a reflection of the quality of service you've provided in the past. But here's the whole thing. Very few salespeople can rely on 100% inbound to be able to create and generate enough sales. If you're a new business just starting out, if you're a new company, kind of early stages, you don't have enough of a history to create enough inbound. And see, so what happens is inbound is the rain barrel. That's the rain barrel. You put the rain barrel outside and it captures the rain that falls in. I got to be a rain maker. Now let's back up. Let's back up the bus a little bit. And I'm not going to run over you. I'm not going to run. I I might, I might, I might. Go on. I I make a very good speed bump. Good, good, good. Okay. Okay. So anyway, here's the situation. I'm not in favor of just, oh, let's just get this random list of people we're going to call. No. What I want to do is I want to know who is my ideal customer profile, my ICP. And I'm going to zero in on that. And I might have three to four ICPs. I'm never going to have more than four because I can't manage more than four. But if I have like three tight ICPs, okay, I, I was talking to a gentleman last week and he makes a lot of cold calls. But you know what? He knows his very specific market is litigation attorneys. That's it. That's the only, it isn't just attorneys, it's litigation attorneys. And then he has it actually narrowed down even further as to the types of clients these litigation attorneys take. So that is his absolutely tight, tight niche. And he's incredibly successful. You see, what it comes down to is I can bother you. I can pick up the phone. I can call you because here's the whole thing. If I know I can help you, I have an obligation to reach out to you. Let's put it, let's put it in perspective. If I had a problem, oh, okay, I've got plenty of problems. Okay. And I have somebody in there, and, and there's somebody who I know who could who who I don't know, but they know they could help me. I would want them to reach out to me. I would want them to reach out to me. Now, the problem is when they call me, they contact me. I don't know who they are. I don't know. I get it. I totally get it. It isn't until we begin to create that relationship through, whether it be social media, whether it be through normal communication, whether it be through phone, whatever, that I'm going to begin to realize that that person can help me. I firmly believe that we owe it to our customers and, and we owe it to ourselves. Don't focus on the product or the service we sell. I could care less about the product or the service. What I care about is the outcome we create. Absolutely. That's where we're focused on. And I agree with you 100%. I I was being mildly contentious. But the reality is that if you understand who your ideal customer is, you need to put the heavy lifting and the deep thought into who they are where they are, how they got there, 
what outcomes they want and the transformational impact that you can deliver. And the problem is that far too few salespeople get beneath the shallow part of the iceberg, uh, which is the top bit. They never get deep enough and understand how it's going to impact them and what the meaning to that person is. And as a result, when they make their prospecting calls, when they do their outreach, they are irrelevant or they sound like everybody else and they end up in a price conversation right from the off. That is spot on. And, and, and the reason they don't get down in that iceberg is because they have a sales manager or a marketing department that's all about the numbers. It's just, hey, here's 100 leads. Here's I, Nothing drives me crazier than a marketing department, which, oh, we're going to run this webinar. Wow, we had 300 people sign up for this webinar. We did this. And, and, and I think all those are leads or they downloaded this white paper. They down, no, no, no. Th- that just means they did something. That doesn't, you know, I, marketing feels, oh, these are great customers. No, they're not. They're just names. They're just well, names. And, and this is where there is a huge disconnect. And one of the great lies and cons out there at the moment is that intent data works well in business to business. It works well in consumer because people make spontaneous purchase decisions using discretionary uh, spend. But in business to business, you're spending someone else's money and there's normally some form of process or approval process and other people are going to be involved. And certainly if you're making a big investment, it can be a career limiting move. So You've got to get out the habit of believing the hype. In fact, let's just dig down this particular rabbit, Warren, which is um, the proliferation of technology spaghetti that you see in marketing and sales operations where they suffer from shiny object syndrome. Could you just uh, give the managers and the leadership a bit of a beating around this, please? Don't buy it. Here's the, this is what drives me crazy. And I got, a whole cha- I got a whole chapter in my book, A Mind for Sales, on this issue. Here's the whole thing. People go out and buy this software. They buy this, this thing, and because they think it's the solution. They think it's the solution. It's the latest diet. It's the latest hot TV show. It's late, whatever it might be. And they think it's going to cure everything for them. And what, you, what happens is, and I see this in too many companies, they get this whole tech stack. And they become a victim. They become held hostage by their tech stack. Here's the whole thing. You don't want your tech stack telling you what to do. You want to be managing your tech stack. You see, the greatest app we already own. We already all own the greatest app ever. It's our brain. It's our brain. And the problem is we have allowed it to be checked out because sales managers are very quick to sit there and say, oh, if I just get this, I just get, you know, I, I, if we just add this, this is going to cure everything. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to make the process be this robotic, repetitive process. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a repetitive process because that's what works in sales. The most, the top performing salespeople are the absolute most disciplined and repetitive. But here's the whole thing. What they're doing is they're just chasing a dead horse. They're just chasing a dead horse. I mean, how many apps have we seen come, go back about five years ago, six, maybe six or seven years ago, 
And social selling was the rage. And here were all these apps that you could add on to, you know, LinkedIn and Facebook and all this sort of stuff. And it would do all this kind of stuff. And well, it's amazing how those have, all those have flamed out. I mean, it, 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 everything goes through its cycle. Now, there's nothing wrong with cycles. I want to ride every wave as I can. But it's got to be driven by the best app we have. And that's our own brain. Well, this then brings me to another bugbear that I have. Selling is a cerebral role. It requires you to think. It requires you to plan. It requires self-reflection. And it requires you to invest deeply in your learning. But I've seen a huge proliferation in a sense of entitlement that my company has to train me. And if they're not going to train me, why the hell should I put the time and effort in? And then when they do train you, they pay lip service to it and they jump through three, four, five different systems in four or five years. Um, There's no implementation. The managers aren't involved. There's no follow-up. And without putting too fine a point on it, it's all ass about face. What, What the hell is going on? There are so many things that you just said there. I, I, I would never forget. I was doing, I was doing a, me, a large corporate event meeting. This is for a Fortune 500, 500 company. If I mentioned the name, you would know. And uh, I was talking about my book, A Mind for Sales. The salesperson came up to me afterwards and said, man, I'd love to read your book. I said, great. Yeah, but my company, my company won't buy it for me. Look, idiot, go out and buy the book yourself. Invest in yourself. You see, what what I find so amazing is people aren't investing in themselves. I I don't care who you work for. You have to invest in yourselves. Here's the other piece. In fact, it's funny. I got a call later on today with a um, general manager of a company who has been on my case to provide sales training for, for their company. The problem is he's the problem. Yeah, yeah, he's the problem. Nine times out of 10. Right. But he thinks training is going to solve it. I've talked to a number of other people in his company. And they've all and and I've had enough conversations with with him to know that training is not the issue. He's the problem. You see, here's the whole thing. This really comes back. And if you stop and think about this, sales managers, listen up here. Have you ever noticed how your kids turn out like you, your parents? Have you ever noticed that? Kind of interesting, huh? Well, guess what? Your salespeople will turn out like you. So if you want to give bad lip service to sales training, then guess what? Your salespeople will give bad lip service. If you want to give bad lip service to being disciplined and being focused, guess what? Your salespeople will give bad. They, They won't be in the game. I mean, I see this so much. Hey, sales managers. You have to be able to eat the dog food just like everyone else. This is what absolutely drives me crazy. When, when, sa- when sales managers will sit there and harp on their salespeople that they need to be making prospecting calls, but they themselves are afraid to pick up the phone and make a call. Excuse me. Excuse me. Don't think your salespeople don't understand. Don't, don't see that. Don't. Tell me for a second that they don't catch up on that. You know, they don't pick up on that game. They pick up on it. And he, here's another thing that drives me crazy. Sales managers, you have a weekly sales meeting. We'll say it starts at 10 o'clock. Fine. But uh, you don't really get connected till 10.05, 10.06, 10.07. And meeting's supposed to last an hour. 
and 11.15, 11.20, you're still talking. Well, guess what? What does that tell your salespeople? Your, that tells your salespeople that you don't respect time. So guess what? Your salespeople aren't going to respect your customer's time. Gee, is it any wonder why, why your salespeople show up late for customer calls? Hmm. Go figure. They reflect who, what they see in you. A lot of what you said, I agree with, but again, I have to challenge something. One thing that I've never really seen work well because it diverts the manager from their primary job is managers, uh, player managers who carry a personal quota and they instead should be handing over their accounts, in my opinion, and they should be helping their, all of their people achieve their quota. I love what Tom Shodorf did in Splunk, uh, which is that unless 80% of the salespeople within a team hit quota, they weren't allowed to go on any of the jollies. They couldn't get any awards. And uh, where there is a player manager, uh, what I tend to see is that they focus on hitting their own quota rather than focusing on hiring the best people, getting the best out of them, making sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day, helping body block acts of idiocy from senior leadership and clear roadblocks and get the salespeople to collaborate. And I know in a mind for sales, you say that selling is a team sport. So we'll come to that one in a minute. But um, your views on player managers? Yeah, here's the thing. I don't want them to have a quota either, unless they're such a small company that they physically can't avoid. You know, there's two salespeople, whatever, then you probably, then that, that sales manager's probably got to have a quota. No, I don't want them to have a quota. What I want them to have is I want them to know, I want their salespeople to know that they've got the chops. They've got the muscle. They've got the skill set to have done the activity. Here's where the role of the sales manager comes into play. And this is what drives me crazy. I see too many sales managers. What they do is they get involved in two things. One, they harp on the salespeople to make sure they're taking care of existing accounts. That all, hey, would you check on this account? Check on this, check on this, check on this. And so guess what happens? It's amazing. Salespeople become trained to only deal with existing accounts. Gee, no wonder they don't prospect, okay? Yeah. So guess what? You want your people prospecting, you may be talking about that. That's one thing. The other piece is this, is the sales manager who comes along only to close the deal. They're, they're, oh, wow, you're, you, you, you're having a hard time getting this. Let me come on in and I'm going to help you close this deal. That is so stupid because now what you're telling the, uh, the, the salesperson is that their skill set's not capable. Where I want the sales manager involved is going back to something you said, opening up the doors, kind of being the blocker. What they're doing is they are uncovering incremental opportunities that the salesperson isn't capable. That, you know, it just, it just a, a, a sales manager can call up a customer and have a conversation at a different level than the salesperson has, just because they're the manager, just because they, they, they're the leader. And their job is to help uncover incremental opportunities, not be focused on closing the deals. Okay, that I get. So next question, why do salespeople discount? Because they don't believe in their own price. Here's what happens. They discount really for two main reasons. One, they don't believe in their own price. And two, management 
has given them the approval to go ahead and cut their price. I'll give I'll give you a funny story. This is this goes back a number of years ago, but I was an account manager and we sold consumable products to a number of companies. And I had a major company, major customer in the northeast part of the United States, major size, and I'd go in there at the end of the quarter oftentimes because I needed a little bit more to make my number. And I remember one time I walked in there and I sat down with my buyer and I said, I, I, I need you to order one more truck. They would normally order about six, seven trucks a week for me. And I said, I need you to order one more truck. I'm going to ask you a favor. I need to make my number. And she laughed at me. She said, oh, that's so funny. She said, I figured. And sure, I'll be happy because it's, it's only a day's worth of inventory for us. She said, you want to know something? I said, what? She says, I know I buy from about 30 or 40 different companies. I know when the end of their quarter is, when the end of their year is for every one of these companies. And I know which ones are going to play games with me. There's several companies that will absolutely play games. They'll start discounting their price two, three weeks before the end of their fiscal year. And they just keep cutting, cutting. And, and I, just, I just refuse to buy. I just refuse to buy because I know there's going to be a better price. The price is going to get lower and lower and lower and lower. And that's why, because management gets into a panic mode. So right. let me tell you, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's insane what happens out there. There's a deeper insanity, and I'm sure you've observed this as well. And the insanity begins, the cause of the problem typically happens 6, 12, 24 weeks before because the salespeople did not do enough prospecting to fill their funnel up so that by the end of the quarter, there would be enough in there to give them the choice and give them enough flex so that if three, four, five customers didn't buy, then they'd still make their quota. So now what you have is this consistent act of idiocy and self-sabotage that creates this avalanche of catastrophe, which is that they pillage next quarter's pipeline to make this quarter's quota. And if you unpack the implications of that, if you got a 6K MRR, a monthly recurring revenue, and you've got to make up 200 grand, that's 36 deals. Then they give a 30% discount to try and encourage, i.e. bribe and buy the business. That means you've got to make up 48 sales next quarter having stolen them from the pipeline. And you've also got a churn rate in SaaS, the average churn rate, apparently acceptable average churn rate is 15%, which means that every three years, you've got to replace 49% of your customers. And a lot of those companies churn because they were missold, they were put under pressure, they were sold when they aren't ready. This then creates this spiral uh, downward because the reps then feel more and more pressure. There's burnout. You end up with turnover. Um, and the, the logical fallacy is that people buy because they get given a discount. So what would you say to the investors who are fueling this spiral of violence? Well, because the investors are not are not digging down deep enough. All they care about is the quarterly numbers because they're looking at the next round of funding. They're looking at when they're going to flip it, when they're going to do the IPO. I, I want to come back. I want to unpack a couple of things. He, he, here, here's the disease. Discounting, and I hate to use the word, is a cancer. Yeah. Once I start discounting, 
this is a drug and I become addicted to it. And then I feel every deal, every offer I make has to have a discount. Now, here's one of the big issues that comes into play. You talked about having a full pipeline. One of the big things, it's not just having a full pipeline. It's understanding what's in the pipeline and knowing the needs that the customer has. I'll give you an example. You have to be able to put a price on the table and be able to walk away. You have to be able to walk away. This happened a few years ago. Company reached out to us, reached out to my company. We have been talking with them. They really needed me to come in. They needed me to talk about negotiating and price and so forth with their sales team because they had two major competitors that were going to come into their marketplace in just a few months. And the senior management and the investors were scared that a lot of the salespeople were going to leave, go to work for the competitor, or they'd get into this whole price discount game. So we put a package on the table. It was a pretty, pretty expensive package. And it's all, it's all done. All of a sudden, the CEO wants to get involved. The CEO calls me up and the conversation goes like this. Mark, your price, your company's price is way too high. How much will you discount your price? Now, think about that. Salesperson hears that and they freak out, right? Ah! My response was this. We will not change our price. The only thing we will change is the value you're going to get from it. How much business do you expect to lose from these two new competitors coming into your marketplace next quarter? Uh, absolutely. My, my favorite response to that uh, was, oh, right. So you'd like me to teach your salespeople how to discount. Is that what you're asking? Right. Because here's what happened. Here's what happened. There was this long pause. There was this it seemed like an eternity. Now, stop and think about this. This is when, you know, there's a silence. You're, you're negotiating and there's a silence. What is the salesperson breaks? Uh, oh, they go, they go in and say something stupid. No, I just waited. I just waited. And the CEO came back and said, that was good. You're hired. Mm -hmm. You're hired. I had well, a situation. I, 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 I'm in the process of selling my house right now. And we're negotiating with a person. And, and they, just the other day, they put an offer in and we countered. And then they told the real estate agent that they would get back to us at noon the next day. And noon came the next day. And my wife said, it's noon. Don't you think you should, you should call? I said, no, no. They're waiting for me to call. I'm not, I'm not going to call. I'm not going to call. Mm -hmm. I'm going to wait for them. Silence, silence works. Silence works. And it was about eight hours later before they responded because they were looking for me to offer it, offer a, another discount. No, I'm not offering discount. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you, I, you I, have, yeah. I have a lovely solution to discounting, which is you can discount as much as you like, as long as you know that for every dollar you discount, we're taking a dollar off your basic salary. You know what? If, if, if salespeople are very quick to give away other people's money. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because he, here's the whole thing. When you cut your price, are you changing the product at all? No, no, no. The cogs cost of goods sold remains the same. So all you've done is you've taken it totally out of profit. So yeah, let's just, let's just take it out of your salary and we'll see how you feel. Absolutely. And if it goes into negative, then I get you working for free for years. Yeah. Which is uh, great. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. So again, another question that frequently is asked but I think people are coming at it from the wrong angle is why is sales so hard? Well, here's the whole thing. Sales is not hard. 
People want to make it hard because they want to have an excuse as to why they're not successful. Okay, I'm just calling it out the way it is. They, they want it to be viewed as hard. So they have an excuse as to why they weren't successful. The number one, all it takes to be successful in sales. Are you ready? Here's the magic. Know who your ideal customer profile is. Who's the perfect customer? Know the outcomes you create. In other words, how does the customer benefit from it? And three, be repetitive and disciplined in the activity you do. That's it. Drop the mic. We go home. <laughs> Excellent. Mark Hunter, thank you very much. There you go. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, I'm with you. I mean, sales is an incredibly simple uh, role, but the seller and often the managers make themselves the obstacle to the customer buying. And they make themselves the issue. They catastrophize. There's this uh, inner dialogue. Then they uh, and have this uh, debate over a sales meeting or a one-to-one. And they start making all sorts of assumptions. Chances are they've talked their way into a corner. They've failed to get any depth in their conversation with the prospect. So they've acted like the commodity they they are. And they have failed singularly to understand the human being to whom they're trying to sell. And as a result of that, uh, and the lack of prospecting activity earlier on in the year, probably three, six months previously, they now find themselves in a situation where the pipeline is bare they need every deal and they're under pressure because they probably underperformed for one, two, three, four quarters in a row. And they come at it from a mindset of scarcity and fear. So if you're advising a young salesperson coming into the profession, maybe first, second year, what are the habits that you would urge them to develop? not just around prospecting, but more broadly in terms of development. Be a continuous learner. Connect with people who you can use as a mentor, people who you can learn from. Listen to them. That's one element. Two, be absolutely disciplined with your time. I have what I call the 10 a.m. rule, the 10 a.m. rule. By 10 a.m., I want to have accomplished something significant. Because if I've accomplished something by significant, of significance by 10 a.m. It's amazing how much better I feel. Three, be disciplined and repetitive in your time. Don't allow yourself to get caught up in shiny objects. Don't allow yourself. You do those three sets of things. And I think, and and I'll add one more in there because it really is kind of the overarching thing. Understand the outcomes that you create in your communication style. Because when you, uh, I will take, a person who has very good communication skill set, and they will outsell an intellectually brilliant individual who has no communication. So maybe I guess there's four things in there. See, I'm, make, I'm making this stuff up as I go. Okay. Are, Absolutely. There are you tracking with me? types of people who do maths, them who can and them who can't. That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, so again, another um, very common problem that I see. And 
without overly stereotyping, male salespeople suffer from this more than female salespeople, which is they focus on the logical evidence, the reason, uh, reasoning. They do not focus anywhere near enough on the emotion, on empathy, on understanding the personal motivations of the individual buyer and why they are uh, considering a, any particular purchase or change of their circumstance or behavior. So why is there not greater emphasis on things like emotional awareness, on collaboration, on planning, on organization and structure, on learning in the recruitment process? And instead, we fixate on historical results on whether they've got good telephone manner, um, whether they've got skills, because you can teach all of that stuff. I mean, most technique you can teach to a monkey, for God's sake. I mean, we teach salespeople all the time. You know, you have to teach them in triangles so that they understand it. But the really important stuff, the human side, is almost never even touched. Listening, silence, that stuff just isn't taught. Why? Let's back the bus up and let's get every male to lay down on the road so I can run over them. Because you're right. Okay. Women sell better than men. W women make better salespeople than, than men. Absolutely. For, for one very simple reason. They take the time to listen. They demonstrate empathy. They understand how to emotionally engage with somebody. Males, on the other hand, view every conversation as if it's a sporting event. And there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. And they don't tend to be a loser. And that right there sums it up. So you're right. It's it, it's men do not understand what empathy is all about because they want they and, and I'm speaking in general terms. Here, they view things more in black and white. It's black or it's white. Boom. Move on. Move on. It, it's an, they, they have an engineering mindset to the process. And on the one hand, that can make them very deliberate and very disciplined and keep them in the game longer, but it can also have them being thrown out of a lot of conversations because they don't hear, they don't listen. Of the top 10 salespeople I've ever met, I can honestly say eight of them are women. There you go. And they are so far ahead of their average male counterpart. But this is a really interesting thing. Without exception, they've really struggled because in a male-dominated environment, they put forward an idea, it gets shot down. One of their probably dumber male counterparts comes up with the same idea five minutes later, and all of a sudden, it's perceived as being the best idea since sliced bread. They struggle to move into management. A good friend of mine, she did $46 million last year and her company decided to pay her $14,000 in commission. Needless to say, she was not happy bunny and left. And I, I see this constantly, where really brilliant, talented women are passed over, ignored, marginalized. So again, what can we do about that? Well, this comes back to this whole thing. Is it the message or is it the carrier? What you just described, two people can have the same message. And from one person is viewed as brilliant 
And the other person is just glossed over because it's it's the carrier, the message in the carrier. Here's the whole thing. It will never become undone until we finally realize the value of what's out there. I have seen this time and time again in organizations where it's been a, a male-dominated organization and women struggle to get in the door. Engineering, uh, let's not get ourselves. That, that, that's still a very much of a male-dominated. Computer science is still very much of a male-dominated. And what is very interesting is I see women coming into those fields and they are making, I, I'm working with a company right now that, that deals exclusively with engineers. And they have about nine salespeople. Three of them are women. And let me tell you something, those women are crushing it. They're absolutely crushing it. And it's interesting, but I had a conversation with the CEO who's been the CEO for probably about 15 years with the company. And he made a comment to me, he said, if I had known 15 years ago how effective women are in selling, I would have made sure my, my VP of sales began hiring them sooner. So, I mean, we all become converted. It just, it just, it's when do we have that day of reckoning? But here's the whole thing. There's a tremendous amount of sales managers because again, they have this philosophy, they have this strategy, they have this, 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 this view and um, they can't, in other words, they're the obstacle. I, I, I really believe Frontline and second level managers, sales managers, are the biggest obstacle in sales today. I, I absolutely agree with you. Now, is that down to ignorance, incompetence, or is it something else? It's turf protection because they're scared. It really comes down to turf protection. They don't want to change. So they're going to do everything possible to build as big of a fence around their domain to protect their little world. And they are just simply not going to change. I mean, we, we see this across society and so many things. So let's not, let's not kid ourselves. It's not just heat in sales management. We see it in everything. So, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not picking on exclusively sales managers, but see here, it comes down to this whole thing that this is the way we've always done that. This is the report. This is the report we've always done. This is the report. I was uh, asked to come in and work with a company back in January and to reevaluate their entire sales uh, uh, process. And they had this report that they'd been using for probably about 10, 15 years. <laughs> and I challenged them on it. I said, Why? well, this is what we've always done. This is what we've always done. Well, why? Why? We finally got it killed here a couple months ago. And man, you would think it was Christmas day for the sales team because they were ecstatic to finally get rid of what they felt was the most stupid report they had ever seen. They, but they'd been, doing, had been having to do it for years. But one and of my but, favorite posters uh, comes from despair.com, my third favorite website on the planet. And it's a picture of the Pamplona bull run with the headline tradition. And the caption reads, just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. And I firmly believe that it's a red flag when a manager says, this is the way we've always done it. And that should probably be the first written warning uh, before firing. And 
And this then brings us to the next big issue around diversity in sales teams. 50% of the population of the planet, just in case any of you have missed it, at least is women. I think it's around 52. 80% of the planet isn't pink-skinned. And most of them aren't degree-educated. And what I've found is wide range of backgrounds, experiences, ages, socioeconomic background, education, religious orientation, everything. Having people from a widely diverse team means that we end up coming up with much more creative solutions to difficult problems than listening to the echo chamber of people who are just like us. And I think one of the biggest plagues in sales is hiring people like us, only weaker. So let's tackle the recruitment issue. When putting together the next hire, the hiring template for that, what advice would you give in terms of the hiring manager? What should they let go of? What should they not repeat? They have to let go of historical norms and, and again, What's, you know, again, we always say, oh, let's look at the track record of the person. Yeah, I I get that. But let me tell you something. There's a lot of credibly successful people who are waiting to find the ability to demonstrate their success. So again, what I come back to is I come back to what is the person's communication skills? How do they come across? How do they process? How do they dialogue? How do they engage? Here's one of the things I'm looking for. And this comes back to this whole diversity piece and so forth. I want people to answer questions in different manners. I want questions. I want people to ask different questions. I want people. And if all I'm doing is hiring people that are exactly like me, I'll never get to that. Because this is what's very interesting. We all bring a historical level into the workplace based off the childhood that we had. It's just normal. So, you know, if, 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 if somebody grew up in an inner city, they're going to have one view. As somebody who grew up in a, a suburb, they're going to have another view. If somebody who grew up in some remote third world country, they're going to have a different view. And what's very interesting is these collective views. It, think about this. This is what makes any sports team great. You know, on any sports team, I don't care what it is. I, I don't care. Football it doesn't matter. You can't have everybody skilled at the exact same position. You'll never win. You have to have a skill set across every position on the field because otherwise you're not going to be successful. So you have to challenge. See, sales managers don't want to feel uncomfortable. They want to hire people who they feel are going to become comfortable. Now, stop and think about this for a moment. Here's something I have a real concern with. Why is it that so many new hires don't work out? 21% leave within 45 days. Wow. 21% within 45 days. Yeah. Yeah. Shocking. Yeah. And, and, and what's always interesting is the sales manager is always quick to say, oh, it's a person. It's a person. You know, the, 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 the example, I, and, 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 and I hate to say this, my wife was having a conversation with a lady who is getting married for the third time. <laughs> and my wife hates, you know, she says, well, the, the first two were just losers. And, and my wife didn't have the heart to tell her, but maybe you're the loser. 
you know. Yeah. Again, another despair.com uh, that sadly they've discontinued this one. And it was a picture of a chain snapping. And it said, have you ever considered that in all of your dissatisfying relationships, the one constant is you? Yeah, bingo, bingo. Drop the mic on that one. See, Absolutely. see, this comes back to the whole thing of sales tools, apps and hacks and software programs and so forth, because I'm not capable of doing what I want to do. So I'm going to blame it. I, I'm going to go out hire something else. I'm, I'm going to, no, 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 no. You're never going to be successful until you fix yourself. This then brings us to another really interesting uh, philosophical conversation, which is important. Hiring for intrinsic versus extrinsic locus of control and intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Because if you turn up because you want, you find the work satisfying um, and you cannot wait. I mean, this morning I was up at 10 past three again uh, because it was a Monday and I couldn't wait to get started. I had to lie in bed until five o'clock so that I don't end up getting divorced but I couldn't wait to get started. The money doesn't bother me because I know that if I do enough of the right behaviors consistently and I help enough other people, the money is a byproduct. Um, Let's investigate uh, the difference between intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. This really unpacks a number of things and let's get the sales manager involved in this conversation also. First of all, I want sales managers to realize you can't motivate anybody. Yeah, you can't. All you can do is create an environment for your salespeople to motivate themselves. That's all you can do. You you just create the environment for them to motivate themselves. Now, that line must be able to motivate the sales team from the job description. It's horseshit. Right. It is. It's just it's just garbage. So I have to be able to be in a position from an intrinsic extrinsic that where am I getting my satisfaction? Am I getting my satisfaction because I was able to use and abuse you? Or am I getting my satisfaction because I was able to help you see and achieve what you did not think was possible? Mm-hmm. We think about the definition of sales. You know, the, the definition of sales and the definition of leadership is the exact same thing. It is oh, to help others absolutely. see and achieve what they didn't think was possible. I, I, I love to use the example of Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill during World War II you know, in in the daily bombings of London, what was he having to do? He was having to sell the people of London that we will see better days, that we will see better days. You know, so was he selling or was he leading? He was doing both. A, a great salesperson is a great leader. And I couldn't agree more. And this is where I think um, there is a huge misunderstanding and disconnect because it's often said that a salesperson and a sales manager are 180 degrees from each other. They're absolutely not. The role functions are different, but the underlying intrinsic beliefs, uh, values, the behaviors, the outlook, the objectives are identical. And I'm delighted to have found a kindred spirit on this because the number of times I've had to listen to uh, leaders blather on about how we want individual contributors who are money-motivated, will-to-win, competitive. Well, that's all fine and dandy, but if you're on the receiving end of that, chances are you're not going to buy again. 
Um, you've got to, as a seller, you have to turn up with the intent to help and to serve. You've got to be high on trust. Sorry, go ahead. No, it, that's why I got fired from my first two sales jobs. I got fired from my first two sales jobs because I viewed the customer as if they were a bowling pin and I was a bowling ball. And my job was to knock them down, take their money and run as rapidly as possible. And I was in it purely for the money. And so what was happening was I was creating expectations, customer expectations that the company couldn't deliver on. I was creating chaos and mayhem behind me. I, I was the person who was driving down the road creating all kinds of accidents behind me. That's what I was doing. But I'm, oh, the road looks good. Road looks good. Road looks good ahead. Yeah, ahead. But behind me, it's absolute chaos. You, That's what happens. And you're, you're absolutely spot on. You've got to hire people who are high on trust. Um, you can teach the tactics and technique. You cannot teach, well, you can teach the values. But if someone comes into sales with the express motivation of making money, the customer picks up on it. If you're putting your commission before their outcome and before their safety, I mean, one of the concepts I'm delighted I learned from one of my mentors, Simon Bowen, is bias safety. And if you are not practicing good bias safety, then chances are you will have high customer turnover. People will not invite you back. Your second meeting conversion rate, first to second meeting, will be really low. You will end up only ever selling at the end of the quarter in the fireside sale because they were going to buy anyway. Okay, Mark, um, sadly, we've come to the top of the hour. This has been really fascinating. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. Tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Mark, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you whisper in his ear that you know he'd have probably ignored, but it would have been good advice? Shut up and listen to the smarter people around you. <laughs> Excellent. On that note, I've realized that very late in my career, 35 years in, that one of the most powerful opening questions you can ask is, what do I need to do to earn your trust? And then shut up. And it's incredibly powerful. Once they've answered that, normally their jaw hits the floor. Then they say, oh, no one's ever asked me that. And just let the silence sit. And then what do I need to do to earn your loyalty? It's Those two questions are breathtakingly powerful because customers will tell you how to sell to them and how to keep them. It's not hard when you go into the approach, I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen. I have a sales call. I have a sales call coming up in about 25 minutes. And I intend to do all the listening. And I know when I get done, I'm going to have another customer. Absolutely. So again, show up believing that you have the right to be there. And with the expectation that if you can't help, you'll refer them to someone else. And if you can, you have an obligation to make the sale. You got it. Fantastic. Okay, Mark, what books have influenced you? Wow, what books have influenced me? I mean, I tell you what, I read so much. I probably try to read a book a week. There, there's any, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, how to win friends and influence people. I mean, still, there are some of those ultimate classics. There are some of the Zig Ziglar, See You at the Top. I mean, these are some of the legendary books that have been around for years and years uh, that have influenced me. 
the Bible influences me. I mean, there. He, he, here's something salespeople we have to understand. Some of the most fascinating books I've read have been history books on World War II, history books on 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 European civilization. Again, one of the things we as salespeople is it's easy to sit here and I and I did recommend it first, you know, some sales books. But then we as salespeople, we have to broaden ourselves. We have to broaden ourselves and realize that it's a big, broad world out there. And the more educated we are, the more insights we can bring to our customers because you know what? We do a better job of listening. Well, you, you've touched on something really near and dear to my heart, which is that we need to be widely educated because you're dealing with human beings. If you don't understand humanity, you don't read history. If you don't read widely, then chances are you will have a very, very narrow blinkered view. The great courses have a fabulous course called From Yao to Mao, 4,000 Years on Chinese History. Wow. And did you know that 3,000 years ago, the Chinese had an empire of a billion people? I was not aware of that. Wow. Now, when you think about geopolitics and you look at the spat that China was having with your previous president, for them, he was nothing more than a mosquito bite. When the Chinese premier, Deng Xiaoping, was asked what was the impact of World War II on China, and bear in mind this was in the 1990s, his response was, hmm, we're still trying to figure that out. They play the long game. If you don't understand that your competition is the Chinese empire and you're playing quarterly reporting and you think that you're going to beat them, they played the long game. At the end of the Korean War, the American delegation rented three floors of the uh, Seoul Hilton for three months. The Chinese delegation rented a five-bedroom house for three years. Now, you've got to read around. You read around uh, science. Quantum physics is very instructive. Behavioral economics. There is so much incredible information out there. And you'll start to make connections. So follow Mark's advice. Read obsessively and read widely. Okay, um, Mark, how can people get hold of you? Well, the best way is the website, thesaleshunter.com. Yes, Hunter's my real last name. I didn't change it when I got into sales. Thesaleshunter.com. And you can follow me on LinkedIn, YouTube. I'm all I'm all over social media. I just provide, share. but. Um, Love to engage with anybody anywhere. And of course, my books, A Mind for Sales and High Profit Prospecting. Excellent. Mark Hunter, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you feel the urge, then please leave an honest review. If you hate me, hate the podcast, give it one star review. Uh, if you love it, give it five or anywhere in between. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Oh, and by the way, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. Bye-bye. <laughs>